This is Medical Matters, Insights into Current Issues in Health and Halacha with Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman and Hannah Evenchen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new Edim Center podcast. I'm Hannah Evenchen, and I'm honored to be joining Dr. Galper-Grossman on this podcast. The Edim Center works to strengthen Jewish women and family life and promote the spiritual, emotional, physical, and sexual health of women and couples using the mikvah as a primary vehicle to attain those goals. Sharon Galper-Grossman is a radiation oncologist and former faculty member of Harvard Medical School, where she also obtained a master's in public health. She is a graduate of the Morot Halacha program for women's advanced halachic learning at Matana Sharon. She writes and lectures on women's health and halacha and teaches for Matan, Machon Pu'ah, and the Eden Center, where she is the director of community health programming. Today, we will be discussing the COVID-19 vaccine for children. I'd like to introduce this topic by saying that while primarily the Eden Center focuses on topics relating specifically to women's well-being and mikvah, it's also important to the Eden Center to address issues regarding family life and community. The values that are taught in our homes impact the greater community around us. The decisions the parents make reinforce certain concepts model values, and can impact a much broader circle than just their own family. Currently, our global global community is facing a huge challenge with the COVID pandemic. It is important to consider both the perspective of our individual health and also the perspective of our responsibility towards the community at large. We're going to talk about some of the medical considerations as well as some of the halachic issues that are involved in the decision to vaccinate children. So, Sharon, how, a uh, two-part question we'll start with, how does COVID affect kids? And um, I have heard that it affects them less severely than adults. So can you please tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So kids do get infected with COVID. In the United States, nearly 2 million kids have been infected. Uh, and And there are various estimates that suggest that the actual true incidence of COVID in kids is six times higher. Yes, kids get COVID, but it's typically less severe in children. So for across the board in the United States, 800,000 people have died from COVID and only 100 children between the ages of 5 to 11. Nevertheless, COVID-19 infection is the eighth leading cause of death in children according to this, in this age group, according to the CDC. And according to data from Kaiser, it's the sixth leading cause of death. So it, it does affect children. Uh, it can affect children uh, and endanger their lives. 8,000 kids have been hospitalized with COVID, and one in three of those children did not have underlying any underlying comorbidities, any underlying diseases, just the average healthy kid. And one in three of those kids who was hospitalized ended up in the intensive care unit. So COVID is not always just another infection in children. It it can be dangerous. Children also are more likely to develop a complication called PIMS, Pediatric Multisystem Inflammatory Syndrome, which is a pathologic immune response that can affect any of the major organs. We don't really understand why this happens. It occurs in about one in a thousand kids. And when it happens, the kids can get very, very sick. 60 to 70% of these kids end up in the intensive care unit. They can also develop myocarditis. 
I, I suspect a little bit later we're going to talk about myocarditis uh, and the vaccine, but just just for, just to put it out there, the risk of um, PIMS is 10 times higher in children than the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. Kids also get long COVID. So about 7 to 8% of kids will have long COVID symptoms that uh, persistent symptoms after the initial infection. So they can get headaches, uh, muscle aches, persistent fatigue, uh, insomnia, cough, or shortness of breath with exertion, or brain fog. So, and this typically resolves uh, two to four months after, but those two to four months can be really challenging for a child. So imagine a a 12-year-old, or uh, sorry, imagine a 10-year-old who plays soccer all the time, and suddenly he can't play because he's short of breath, and he coughs. He doesn't understand why, what's wrong with me? Or a third grader who was typically getting excellent grades in school, and now suddenly has brain fog and can't sit through the day in the classroom because she just can't concentrate. In addition, um, the, the pandemic has taken a toll on our children. Our kids have been in lockdowns. Our kids have had school closures. In the United States, one million children in the first few months of this, of this academic school year this year have not been able to go to school. The pandemic has affected their mental health, uh, forcing them to socially distance. And other reasons that we're concerned about COVID in the kids is the importance of vaccinating them to achieve herd immunity and to prevent the development of variants, which unfortunately uh, we are experiencing now with the emergence of Omicron. So it really sounds like COVID, um, even if uh, thankfully is perhaps less severe, presents less severely in children than adults, it really does pose um, a risk to kids' health and well-being in the short term and in the long term. Um, That's right. And the risks are not the risks are not zero in children. Right. And I think uh, I appreciate that you mentioned also the closures, the 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 quarantines, um, not to mention the mental health of the mothers who have all their kids home in quarantine. Um, But those are very those are becoming with the passage of time and the longer this goes on. Those are going from being something that we perhaps, you know, somewhat joked about in the beginning and become real, real issues and affecting kids' social development and, um, and mental health. And uh, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. Um, so what do we know about the vaccine for children? So the vaccine uh, for children is really based on the vaccine that was developed in adults, which has been uh, administered. There have been more than 280 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine administered in the United States and another 100 million doses of the vaccine administered across the world. When it came down, it came time to design the vaccine for um, for the kids, Pfizer tried to figure out what the right dosage was for the kids. Adults received 30 micrograms uh, in, each, in each vaccine, in each dose. And was this the right dose for kids? And so they tested 10 micrograms, 20 micrograms, 30 microgram dose, and found that the 10 microgram dose produced the same immune response as the higher dose with fewer side effects. And so they set out to test uh, the safety and efficacy of this dose in the 5 to 11-year-old age group. 
They enrolled 2,200 kids. For every two kids who got the vaccine, one got placebo. So about 1,500 kids got the vaccine. And they followed these kids for two months. Why two months? Because the side effects uh, that we would see from a vaccine typically occur within the first almost always occur within the first six weeks. And so a two-month window would really uh, allow us the opportunity to capture any potential side effects that could develop. And really, the plan was for for the data to be mature uh, by the summer and to apply for approval from the FDA in the summer to initiate a vaccination program in this age group before the start of school in September. However, there were then reports that the vaccine uh, was associated with myocarditis in the older age group. And so the FDA requested that uh, Pfizer enroll more subjects and test the vaccine on more kids. And so Pfizer then enrolled another 2,200 kids for every two. Every two of them got the vaccine and the others uh, received the the placebo. And so we now have data on 3,000 kids who got the vaccine. And so the vaccine was 91% effective in preventing uh, symptomatic disease. And there were no cases of myocarditis. Uh, The side effects in kids were typically the same side effects as seen in adults. In fact, uh, Maccabi reported last week on 40,000 kids vaccinated in Israel and uh, said that only 20% had any symptoms typically headache or muscle pain, and only 1% sought medical attention. And so the vaccine appears to be quite safe uh, in in this age group. Uh, And for parents who were really on the fence and waiting to see, you know, how's it going for the kids who've gotten the vaccine, I think based on the 5 million kids who've been vaccinated in America and the 60,000 who've been vaccinated in Israel, it's well tolerated with minimal side effects. Uh-huh. And, and just to add, you know, this not kids are not mini adults. There are some differences in uh, the vaccine for kids compared to adults. And those are the lower dose, the 10 micrograms instead of the 30 micrograms, so one third the dose, as well as bottles. If, if anyone who's taken their kids to vaccine has seen that the bottles are orange and this was deliberate, uh, the adult vials are purple. And so to make sure there's no mistake, no errors. The kids' vials are orange. That's good to know. So am I understanding correctly that though there was a lot of attention in the social media about the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine, that that's actually not something that we need to be concerned about? So yeah, let's take a few moments to talk about myocarditis because who even heard of myocarditis before of all of this happens, right? Um, So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart. And for whatever reason, the vaccine seems to very rarely uh, cause myocarditis. And so how often, how how common is that side effect? Best information we have comes from Israel, from the Ministry of Health, from 5 million of us who who were vaccinated. Uh, And they, they reported 136 cases of myocarditis out of 5 million Israelis. 129 of those were mild uh, and really just resolved with minimal intervention. We know that uh, myocarditis is a little, is more common in uh, the 12 to 15 year old age group, especially boys. And even in that age group, there out of 1 million vaccinated kids, 
only 180 developed myocarditis. We also know that COVID infection causes myocarditis. Uh, and it's much more common than myocarditis that might develop after the vaccine. How much more common? So for, a, for a, when the, out of a million people who've been diagnosed with COVID, there'll be 40 cases of myocarditis from COVID infection compared to a million people who are vaccinated who might have one extra case of myocarditis. And so we have a risk of 40 cases of myocarditis from COVID infection compared to a case, one case of myocarditis from the vaccine. In addition, not all myocarditis is the same. The myocarditis from COVID infection is quite severe. People who have myocarditis typically end up in an intensive care unit, uh, typically require intubation. Uh, the kids can require blood pressure support. It can take quite a long time to recover, uh, long hospitalizations. Whereas kids who get myocarditis uh, from the vaccine are much more likely to have a benign course, recover after just a few days, maybe just require some ibuprofen, uh, and their echocardiogram will return to normal pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So myocarditis is a much higher risk in, um, uh, from COVID, and it's a much more severe risk than from the vaccine. Okay, thank you for explaining that. Um, I do have a question about the vaccine. I have heard people express concern that uh, since there was a global pandemic and a lot of pressure and a lot of stress around the topic of COVID, is there a concern that the vaccine was developed too quickly, under pressure, not in ideal conditions that might have compromised the process that, uh, that should have taken place? That's a really important question. And yes, it is a major concern that people have that this, that suddenly, uh, suddenly a few months after we identify this, this virus, we have a vaccine that's being, that's being studied. And very shortly after, it's approved. And very shortly after that, it's being injected into people. But the answer is that no corners were cut here. Baruch Hashem, the world banded together to make this vaccine happen. China shared uh, its sequencing of the virus. The um, governments banded together to, uh, to pool resources, to fund these studies. Governments uh, manufactured the vaccine, supported manufacturing the vaccine. So we had stockpiles of the vaccine available even before we had data to show that the vaccine was effective so that we could just get out and vaccinate as soon as that data was available. Uh, the vaccine, some of the vaccines were developed based on existing platforms that had been in existence for several years already. When we can develop uh, messenger RNA vaccines, which is the um, basis for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine a little bit more quickly. And social media really um, publicized the vaccines uh, to people so that people, so that people participated, they enrolled quickly in the trials. And there was so much COVID around that uh, we got results pretty quickly. So no, no corners were cut. Uh, and, and the reason everything happened so fast was because the world, the world made it happen. Wow. That's a really amazing perspective. It makes me think that uh, in addition to the challenges happening all over the world because of COVID, there's also an element of both achdut, 
like you say, the world banded together, that all the countries had a certain common goal to some degree. Um, and it also maybe gives us an opportunity to really see um, almost a miraculousness in the opportunities that science gives us, the Yad Hashem in using our resources really to help people in the face of something that's so scary and severe. So, uh, so I appreciate that perspective. You know, and another concern that people have is that, um, that they're, you know, things were done, were, were, were withheld. There's, con- there's a conspiracy here, a government conspiracy, a conspiracy of the pharmaceutical companies. And I just have to say that this vaccine is the probably the most heavily studied medical intervention in the history of medicine. No, no time in history has so many people received the same medical treatment at the same time. And uh, there's been transparency every step of the way. The FDA, uh, you can look on the internet and read all of the available information that was submitted to the FDA. Uh, I personally sat and watched the FDA meetings where they um, where they actually uh, authorized use of the vaccine. I sat with my kids and really watched history unfold. So there's full transparency here. Yeah, that's really important to hear. And uh, it also helps reframe. I know, especially as a mother, we struggle a lot with social media and the kids and social media and phones. And this also gives a nice angle on that and the uh, benefits of social media and spreading the word and how that helped get the word out and get people vaccinated quicker and, uh, and move the process forward. Um, I'd like to jump to another question that I think, uh, especially to, uh, for our Eden listeners, Uh, might be interested in. And that is, is there a concern um, about the vaccine affecting fertility in boys, in girls? I've heard this concern be raised. And also, in general, does it affect fertility? And within that question, now that we're talking about younger kids and girls who maybe haven't even gotten their periods yet, um, what can you tell us about that topic of concern? So the, uh, there's a lot of concern about the effects of the vaccine on fertility, uh, and that is purely based on a blog written by a European doctor about a year ago, just as the vaccines were becoming author were being authorized. Uh, the, uh, the doctor pointed out that the, a protein in the placenta was similar to the spike protein on the vaccine. And he raised concerns that um, the vaccine would create antibodies to that protein. And those antibodies might attach to the placenta and interfere with a, health, with a pregnancy. Uh, we now know that the two proteins, the protein on the placenta and the spike protein, are uh, are not are not are not similar enough to have that kind of effect. His blog has been withdrawn, and we know that the vaccine does not interfere with female fertility or male fertility. It does not cause miscarriage. It does not lead to pregnancy complications. Uh, we know that the vaccine, in fact, is transmitted. The antibodies from the vaccine are transmitted through the placenta, which offers, which would, in theory, offer uh, a baby, a newborn baby, some protection over the during the first few months of life. It's also transmitted. The antibodies are also transmitted in breast milk, which would potentially offer some protection to babies that are nursing. In addition. We know that COVID infection uh, 
can be quite dangerous during pregnancy. There is some evidence to suggest that COVID infection might interfere with male and female fertility. And we know that COVID infection is a risk factor for uh, severe COVID and complications. It's on that list from the CDC, along with being immunocompromised. Pregnant women are, well, one in five pregnant women uh, with COVID ends up hospitalized. Two times as many pregnant women end up in the intensive care unit as their non-pregnant counterparts. And And pregnancy increases the risk of dying from COVID by 77%. So it's quite dangerous. It can lead to miscarriage. It can lead to stillbirth. It can lead to premature delivery. Uh, So it's dangerous for the mother and the fetus. And in the United States, the number of pregnant women who died in August, September skyrocketed from the number who died from COVID. And the number who've been diagnosed with COVID has also skyrocketed. And so much so, uh, there's so much concern about COVID in pregnant women, in unvaccinated pregnant women, that Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, personally calls any pregnant woman that she knows who's unvaccinated, uh, especially now with the emergence of Omicron, which we believe to be is more, which believes to be more transmissible. So just as uh, doctors recommend that um, women get the flu vaccine before they become pregnant and get a chickenpox vaccine, they also strongly recommend COVID vaccine to protect woman's health and the health of her pregnancy uh, from COVID infection. Now, regarding your question, uh, at, regarding our young girls and the effects of the vaccine on their periods, so there's been there's been all lots of reports that the vaccine disrupts the menstrual cycle, leads to prolonged bleeding, um, leads to spotting in the middle of the cycle. We don't really have a good handle on how the vaccine uh, might affect menstrual cycle. And this is an area of ongoing research. The NIH has just granted $2 million to almost $2 million to explore this question. But we do know that all kinds of things can affect the menstrual cycle. So a change in diet, uh, more stress, change in exercise, a new medicine, an infection, COVID infection can affect your menstrual cycle, potentially a vaccine. These are transient changes that pass after a month or two and, um, and have no effect on fertility. For someone who has been vaccinated and notices uh, these kinds of changes in her cycle, I would strongly encourage them to seek medical attention to make sure that there isn't an underlying cause for that bleeding that needs to be addressed. And, And when it comes to our daughters who haven't started menstruating yet, there's no evidence that, uh, vaccinate the vaccine will delay their getting the first period. And even if it did, uh, they're, they're going to have lots of fluctuations in their period in the first few months. And there's no long-term effect or implication from, from, the, from that possibility. Okay, thank you. Um, you mentioned Omicron. So I did want to ask you if that new strain that, we're, that has recently uh, come into play, if that changes any of the information that you've presented thus far. So we know very little about this new this new variant. Um, we know we we suspect that it's more transmissible, significantly more transmissible than the Delta variant. 
We don't know if it leads to more severe disease. We don't know to what extent the vaccine offers protection. We don't know uh, to what extent prior infection offers protection. And we also don't know how effective are the treatments that have been identified for COVID uh, are against this variant. Um, the emergence of this variant highlights the importance of vaccination because as long as there's COVID around, there is, uh, there's the possibility for new variants to emerge. Uh, we're not safe until we're all safe. And so it highlights the importance of vaccination in third world countries, as well as vaccinating our children. There's grave concern uh, that Omicron will um, explode in Israel, not, for lack of a better term. And this is really the window to vaccinate, for adults to vaccinate, for kids to vaccinate, uh, to protect us, because it takes four weeks from your first vaccine to develop full immunity. And once it's exploded, we, we lost that window. Right, right. Well, it's a lot, a lot of information. I really thank you for sharing all that uh, information and wisdom about its effects and its benefits of the vaccine. Um, I'll just share from from my perspective and my experience in terms of deciding whether to vaccinate myself, whether to vaccinate my children. Um, I will admit that I did have hesitations. Um, I think that a lot of us might have at first. In general, since the outbreak of COVID, there has been a lot of uncertainty about so many different things in our day-to-day lives and in a lot of elements in our lives. And I think we're all just trying to do our best to keep some sense of normalcy and make the best decisions we can at every step with the information that we have in front of us. And it can be confusing and it can be overwhelming. Um, But what I did with that hesitation, every time I wasn't, every time I hesitated about the vaccine for myself or for one of my children, I realized that when it came down to it, I, I, I feared the virus more than I feared any of the question marks surrounding the vaccine. And yes, nothing is perfect, and we are not omnipotent, and therefore there will remain question marks, I think, in any scientific process. But every time I weighed that, uh, I realized that I still trusted the vaccine more than I trusted this virus that has seems to have taken over the world. So, um, so really, thank you for explaining all, the, all that information about the vaccine, about the virus, about its risks. Um, I would like to address also the halachic side of things. So to start, does halacha have an opinion about vaccinations or about the role of parents in vaccinating their children? Uh, yes, the answer is yes. And what so, is that opinion? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, virtually all modern post scheme, all contemporary post scheme pre- permitted the COVID-19 vaccine uh, and some even obligate vaccination against COVID-19. Someone who vaccinates uh, fulfills the mitzvot, fulfills at least four mitzvot. Guard your health exceedingly. The mitzvah of lo tamor al do not stand idly by, which is an obligation to uh, save others who might be in danger. The obligation to restore lost property, which is understood to also include an obligation to restore people to health, to restore their health. And love love your neighbor. Uh, But when it comes to vaccinating children, there are some unique halachic issues. 
And so questions that arise are, how does halacha view a parent's role? As a parent obligated to promote the health and well-being of their child, does halacha obligate parents to vaccinate their children uh, against routine childhood diseases? And how does this all play out in the midst of a pandemic? So halacha most certainly uh, believes that parents have an obligation to promote the health and well-being of their children. And this is based on a couple of halachic principles. Number one, that that food is synonymous with health care, just as a parent is obligated to provide a child with food, a parent must also provide them with routine, with health care, with basic uh, medical attention. In addition, parents' obligation derives from the mitzvah of the obligation to restore health, and uh, to save someone who might be in danger. Also, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Weiss and Minchat Yitzchak has suggested that it is forbidden to see the child's sorrow and not use every available resource to save him. Now, you might say everyone's obligated to save someone in danger. How is a parent's obligation different? And so Rav Yaakov Emden suggests that the closer the family relationship, the greater the obligation uh, to promote, to, to save someone, to promote their health. And interestingly, this doesn't just apply to treatment of active disease. It's not just, there isn't just, halacha doesn't just obligate us to take our children to the emergency room when they have a broken leg or when, or the doctor, when they have fever, it also obligate, seems to obligate us to help them prevent disease, to take active steps to prevent disease. Uh, Sitz Eliezer wrote a tshuva about ophthalmologic exams and taking your kids to the eye doctor, which is the ultimate example of preventative medicine. And yeah, and, and in that tshuva, he writes that parents have an obligation to promote the health of their kids, which would include preventive treatments, uh, such as eye exams and vaccinations. In terms of the obligation to vaccinate kids against routine childhood diseases, the vast majority of poskim believe that parents have such an obligation. Rabbi Bleich has written, the vaccination of one's children is unquestionably a parental responsibility. Other reasons that uh, parents might have an obligation to vaccinate their kids is Dina de Machuta Dina, the obligation to follow the law of the land and in areas where there is a vaccine mandate, uh, that principle would obligate vaccination. And also Chilil Hashem. Uh, we've watched in horror in communities which refuse to vaccinate their kids against diseases like measles where epidemics uh, broke out and really that kind of outbreak uh, leads to Chil Hashem. So those are the principles that obligate vaccination in general. But what about in the midst of a pandemic? How do these obligations play out? And in fact, these obligations intensify and are heightened in the midst of a pandemic. And so until very recently, parents had very few ways to protect their children Uh, in a pandemic. Really, the only means at their disposal was to evacuate the endemic area. And Magen Avraham suggests that a parent who does not evacuate the child in a pandemic is chayavim benafsham, which Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz describes as criminally negligent. 
Now, more recently, with the emergence of the smallpox vaccine, the Chuva Meava describes parents who do not vaccinate their children as, as having the blood of their children on their heads. Uh, and post game issued all kinds of statements classifying parent, uh, children who are unvaccinated as roadfin, uh, pursuers, pursuers chasing after the immunocompromised, the unvaccinated, uh, potentially endangering their lives uh, by, in, by infecting them. So post have used the harshest terms to describe those who refuse vaccination in the midst of a pandemic. Wow. I especially appreciate the comparison you made between preventative medicine and feeding your child. Uh, it's a very powerful image because just as I don't wait for my child to, God forbid, be suffering from malnutrition in order to feed him, the idea of giving medical preventive, taking preventative medical steps is uh, it's a very powerful comparison to compare it to feeding them. Um, what about, in terms of the parent's obligation, what about the idea of herd immunity? Can a parent say, I understand there's enough children, there are enough children vaccinated in our area, so I won't, I won't vaccinate my child and I'm not putting my child at risk? That's a very good question. Um, first of all, there's a whole debate over whether we will ever reach herd immunity uh, in, from COVID-19 uh, and, how, and how to go about doing that. Rav Yaakov Ariel uh, has suggested that if we wait to achieve herd immunity, first of all, we will never, in his mind, we will never reach herd immunity through natural infection. And if we try to do that, it will lead to an unnecessary loss of human life. But how does Halacha view parents who say, you know what, let everyone else vaccinate, we'll reach herd immunity without me. So Rav Asher Weiss uh, has written in the context of measles vaccine that Parents who take that approach uh, are, have, are behaving inappropriately and perhaps even violating some halachic principles. He compares them to the uh, Dor Hamabul, the Noahite generation, where people said, oh, I'll take one apple, one orange, not enough to constitute theft. But if everyone does that, the merchant won't survive. And so if everyone says, I'll, let, I'll benefit from herd immunity, uh, but I won't contribute to it, We'll never, A, we'll never reach herd immunity, and B, we're all obligated to contribute to public safety. And he cites the example, uh, an example from Baba Batra, Daf Chet Amur Aleph, which talks about the construction of the wall, a wall to fortify the city. And every member of the city must contribute, even an orphan. Why does an orphan need to contribute? Do we really need the orphan's money? We don't really need his money, but everyone must contribute to public safety and everyone must contribute to herd immunity. So uh, at least according to Ravasha Weiss, this, that kind of statement, that kind of approach uh, to herd immunity is, is uh, very much to be discouraged. Okay. Um, continuing in that, in that line of thinking, it seems that in, on this topic, we could talk about the obligation of chinuch, or perhaps we should look at it more as an opportunity for chinuch. Uh, when, when we vaccinate ourselves or we choose to have our children vaccinated, it does send a message to them about, about values, about our responsibility towards others, towards the community. Uh, what are the chinuch points that you think are most relevant here? So Hannah, as you know, uh, according to Torah law, 
boys younger than 13 and girls under the age of 12 are not obligated to perform mitzvot. However, Chachamim established a requirement for them to perform mitzvot for chinuch, for educational purposes. So a child who knows how to shake the lulav uh, is obligated in the mitzvah of lulav from the mitzvah of chinuch. And this awareness, this ability to perform mitzvot typically takes place at age five or six. So a child who undergoes COVID vaccination fulfills the mitzvah of lo tamar al-dam riyacha, riyacha kamocha, v'hashevota lo, and v'nishmartem, from the mitzvot that he, is ob- he or she is obligated in from the perspective of chinuch. Uh, and so that adds another element to um, another reason for parents to vaccinate their children, to help their kids instruct them in the performance of mitzvot and to teach them the importance of these mitzvot. But there's also, uh, uh, there's a great debate among poskim over who this mitzvah of chinuch falls upon. Does it fall upon the parent or does it fall upon the child? And if it falls upon the parent, the parent can educate their child by taking them to be vaccinated. But if it falls upon the child, what does that really look like? And so actually, um, I found a model for this in the 1970s. In the 1970s, there was what was called the Rubella Umbrella Campaign, which uh, was initiated by the New York State Department, New York City Department of Public Health, and it um, and uh, they tried to promote rubella vaccination. Rubella is a disease, it's an infectious disease. It is very mild in children. But if a parent becomes infected, if a mother becomes infected and she's pregnant, it can lead to really very severe congenital abnormalities. And so New York City Department of Public Health ran advertisements, which appeared on WPIX uh, in the midst of children's programming to promote vaccination. And these advertisements involved a little girl holding a white umbrella with red dots, which is the red dots are what rubella looks like. And the male voiceover asks her, hey, little girl, what's that you're holding? And she says, that's my rubella umbrella, and I've gotten vaccinated to help protect my family. There was a rubella umbrella competition that to, to draw the best-looking rubella umbrella, and 23,000 kids uh, participated. Kids, there were advertisements of children holding the, their official rubella umbrella fighter membership card, which says, be it known that on this day, uh, May 19th, 1973, Andy has received rubella immunization and is hereby enrolled as a member of the official rubella fighters club of New York state. By being immunized, this official club member also protects other children and mothers against the spread of rubella. And this campaign was so successful that uh, beforehand, 15, only 15% of parents knew what rubella was. Afterwards, 65% knew what it was, and 530,000 parents took their kids to be vaccinated. And how did it work? Why was it so successful? Because the advertisers appeal to the kids the same way advertisers appeal to kids to buy sugary cereals. They appeal to kids to get vaccinated. And one mother filed a complaint with the New York City Department of Health. Thanks to you, my kid is driving me crazy. I'm homesick. All he wants to do is go out to get his rubella vaccine. 
And this rubella umbrella campaign is really a model for us uh, as the vaccine becomes available to kids, the five to 11 year old age group of, of, how, of how kids can take an active role in vaccination. Lots of parents and, and, and in the midst of Chinuch, I've heard parents tell me that their kids have begged them to take them to be vaccinated. Our kids have been through so much with lockdowns and closures and social distancing uh, and disruption to their lives. Some of them have had to get COVID tested a couple times a week, once to go to shul, another time to go to a chug, to an after-school activity. And, and kids have the opportunity here. We all have an opportunity to take active steps to uh, end the pandemic. And so really, it's my hope that uh, through the, the merits of our children, we will merit the end of the pandemic. Wow. I, uh, I've gained so much in information and clarifications that you've shared with us. And one thing that I, I, I think I'm taking with me from this conversation that we've had is the idea that we are all part of one greater community. It's all too clear now as we watch the entire world struggle with this common enemy. And our actions and our decisions impact ourselves. They also set an example for our children, and they affect the whole community around us. Um, so I think we really have an opportunity to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. And I bless us all with good health. Uh, may we really only continue to see the world and our communities moving in the direction of, of, of health and well-being. I thank you so much, Sharon, for sharing all your wisdom and all your information and insights with us today. I thank all our listeners and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. You've been listening to Medical Matters, insights into current issues in health and halacha with Dr. Sharon Galper-Grossman and Hannah Evenchen. This podcast is an Eden Center production. To learn more about our work, check out our website at www.theedencenter.com.